We first met 10 years ago at a TEDx conference where Brian was speaking. I have since followed his adventures as a mining financier in frontier jurisdictions like Albania and Kyrgyzstan. Brian is perhaps best known for co-founding K92 Mining, a gold producer in Papua New Guinea. I used to joke about Brian being eaten alive there, but he had the last laugh as the company today is valued at 500 million and widely considered to be one of the most promising gold producers. I appreciate Brian as an approachable, street smart venture capitalist and promoter. Backing him helped me pay for my first house. It is my pleasure to welcome back Brian Susarchuk to CEO.ca. How are you doing, Brian? Doing really well, Tommy. Thanks for having me on and for those kind words in the introduction. No problem. My pleasure. Uh, I want to discuss as much as possible today, but first I just have to ask you, uh, how did you pay $250,000 for a mine with $250 million invested? What circumstances brought K&T together? Well, out of the gate, Tommy, as a little bit of background, I think it's important to remember the time period that we were negotiating on this. It was a Barrick asset. Barrick owned the asset for quite some time, but was very focused on the big regional perspective, the, the porphyry upside. Now, due to market conditions and a whole bunch of other factors, they in fact did very little in terms of that big regional exploration, but that's why they bought the asset in the first place. And Barrick had purchased the asset for $140 million US. Subsequently, it invested heavily on the upkeep of the asset and, and, and trying to get started, but they never really got to operate the mine and the mill in earnest for any prolonged period. So the time period was difficult for Barrick. They announced that they would be divesting assets worldwide in order to lower a $13 billion debt. And they were divesting from that region, that Australasian region in general. For us, as a small group of venture capital focused investors and financiers, we looked at that asset a little bit differently. We looked at it as an opportunity to generate cash flow because it's a very high grade asset. The mill was constructed. There was an underground operation in place. We looked at the ability to generate cash flow quickly and then take a look at the bigger regional upside. Uh, so it, it really wasn't a, a brilliant negotiating uh, team that put this together. It was just taking a well-known asset and, and taking a little bit of a different perspective, a different look at it in the right time. It was the right place, the right time. So obviously you had the advantage of Barrick divesting and needing to get out of assets, but it's really incredible looking back. And, and at the time I felt as well, just the structure that you guys put in place. And, and so how, could you describe for the benefit of everyone, the structure that you, uh, you used to acquire the asset? Um, just so we can understand. I think there were it was staggered uh, payments and, and, and Barrick had some greater upside, but you were able to get your hands on it quite cheaply, I recall. So do you mind describing that to us? The, sure, absolutely, Tommy. So out of the gate, we per negotiated the purchase of the asset for $2 million that went into escrow and $60 million of potential contingency payments down the road based on the amount of production over a 10 year period, we would be able to generate the amount of measured and indicated resource we would be able to build up, et cetera. So the $2 million went into escrow and the release from escrow from our group to Barrick occurred when the mining license renewal was in effect. So that process took uh, a number of months. The mining license was renewed and the two million left the escrow account and went to Barrick. We then owned that asset completely, again, with the caveat that there could be some contingency payments up to $60 million in the future. Now, we progressed the project quite quickly, got it into cash flow positive production, 
with all of the typical you know, hurdles and twists and turns of a restart. But once it was generating cash flow, we really went to work with the drill bit and started to develop quite an exceptional, quite an incredible high grade resource with excellent continuity, nice big wide veins. And this was within the environment, the deposit called Cora. We started to look at the potential of those 60 million in contingency payments, went back to Barrick and the team, uh, the negotiation led by a fellow named John Lewins, who's now the CEO of K92 and has just done an exceptional job. John and the negotiating team were then able to bring those $60 million of contingency payments down to 12 and a half. That has now been paid. So essentially, we purchased this asset from Barrick 100% for less than $15 million in total. So really Incredible. quite exceptional when you think about the fact that we're on track to do towards 80,000 ounces of production this year with an average head grade near 20 grams per ton and that we're in the midst, actually almost finished, an expansion ramp up through which we will move into 120,000 ounces per annum plus of production starting next year. How did you find financing when nobody believed in mining? It's a great question, Tommy. And it, it wasn't easy at the time to go out and finance this asset. Geologically, the asset looked great. We, after a lot of due diligence, became very comfortable with the jurisdiction. And we knew that the exploration upside, the reason that Barrick owned this in the first place, was very much there intact and untested at that period of time. We were able to attract financing on the back of the team that we put together. And I think that's just so important for anybody out there that, that's looking for financing and running into uh, brick walls. The, the fact is, is that there are a lot of great projects out there. There are lots of projects with good geology, interesting. You know, I think that this Kanantu project is perhaps one of the most exciting gold projects in the world. But outside of that belief, we were able to initially finance it prior to starting to test and unlock the mystery of Kanantu because of the team we put together. We had a great team of technical guys. We had some mining engineers that, that we thought were just you know, second to none. We had some great geologists that understood the upside at Cora and regionally. And we also had some capital markets guys that were able to go start to unlock the value. And with that combination, we were able to attract some very smart investors in the early days that were willing to take. And let's face it, when I call it a gamble, any early stage mining investment is a gamble and at that point these investors took a gamble that with this team we could unlock the value of the asset so in terms of how we raised the money of course we did it on the back of a wonderful high-grade mining environment but most importantly it was the team of guys that were put together to advance this what uh, what were the darkest days at, at k92 and how did you persevere through them I mean, for me personally, the, the darkest days were uh, pre-going public, pre-IPO, when we had financing in place, but we were moving along uh, slowly on the ground, which is what happens when you, you undertake a restart of a mine, and we didn't know uh, whether or not we could get this across the finish line in terms of the amount of financing that we would ultimately need to unlock the value. So because the market was so difficult at the time, nobody wanted to invest in gold, uh, there were many uh, sleepless nights where I think we collectively wondered whether or not going so hard into a gold project at a time when the world didn't like gold projects, you know, maybe we were wrong. So uh, always out of the gate on these things, you do have, I think, some self-doubt. And, and the darkest days for me were really trying to figure out if we were right or wrong 
in our assessment that we would be able to properly capitalize this. Because one thing in my career that I've learned, Tommy, is that more projects fail because of poor capitalization than anything else. Undercapitalizing these companies in mining is a dangerous, dangerous thing. And early on, I recognized that this would need capital to get it across the finish line. And in the early days of production, we didn't necessarily have that capital. It came together because of the fact we were able to attract great investors, great financiers, institutional retail, high net worth that stuck with us through all the growing pains of a mine restart. And that's paid off hugely for that group of investors. The original financing uh, that was done, including warrant coverage, those investors are now up uh, 10 to 15 times their original capital investment. So it paid off really well for the guys that believed in this project early, but there was a, a lot of, of doubt early on whether we would be able to properly capitalize the company. I um, was one of those fortunate shareholders, Brian. So thank you for that. Well, th thank yeah. you for believing in the team at the time. That's I thought I was doing you a favor, but it turns out you were doing me one. And uh... <laughs> That's how it often works when favors <laughs> in this business often end up the opposite of, of, of how they were originally intended. When did you know that, um, when did you know that this thing was really going to take off and what did that feel like? The, the first time that we did an institutional roadshow post the discovery of Cora and Cora, uh, the, the extension of Cora, I should say, was a game changer for the company. K92 originally started to mine in a deposit area called Irumafimpa. And Irumafimpa was narrow, not great continuity. It was very high grade but difficult mining conditions. When the extension of Cora was discovered by the K92 team, it changed everything. Cora is wide, very high grade, excellent continuity, great ground conditions, and it was the cash flow from Cora that really allowed us to start unlocking the potential of the Kanantu project. And in that first institutional roadshow, post our discovery of the Cora extension, I realized that things were gonna be okay. And, and the reason for that, Tommy, is that the smartest guys we sat down with, uh, technically and in terms of that capital markets uh, experience, uh, understood right away that Cora was a game changer. And I realized that it wasn't just us recognizing how big Cora could become, but quite instantly, the street started to recognize how big Cora could become. So post the discovery of that Cora extension, everything changed for the company. And it was after that first institutional roadshow that I realized that the market acceptance you know, ha had changed. Were you in Toronto at the time? Yeah, it was a Toronto slash New York trip. Uh, we were able to uh, head over to Europe shortly thereafter. And the response from the smartest guys technically was exceptional. They understood what the discovery of the core extension meant. It, the, the average retail investor at that point didn't, and, and they wouldn't have reason to until more data started to flow. Uh, but there was no doubt that investors, institutional investors with real technical uh, bench strength within their teams recognized what that could mean. And they were exactly right. And John Lewins and his team on site have done an incredible job quickly advancing Cora from that first discovery hole to the bulk sample to the declaration of commercial production. That all happened at light speed. Subsequent to that, the resource has been growing. I think most people that follow the story know that we're targeting a high-grade resource of Cora uh, by the end of the year in the neighborhood of 5 million ounces. And wow. uh, as these recent deep holes have shown, outside of that 5 million ounce target area, this thing can get bigger and bigger yet. And where we're fortunate 
is that we have positive cash flow. So unlike a lot of small companies, we can test that big, big, I mean, world-class size potential and grade potential at Cora without having to now go back to the market. We're, we're completely self-sufficient on site by nature of the cash that we're generating. Well, your, your capital sufficiency now is probably why you've retired as president of, of K92. What do you think happens to the business moving forward? I mean, going forward, I think that John has the right idea. And again, I just can't speak highly enough about John and his leadership. He's moving fast forward on site to build the resource up as fast as possible, as professionally as possible, at the same time concurrently undergoing a rapid expansion of production. And this resource calculation that I mentioned that's, that's upcoming you know, towards the end of the year and moving into Q1 2020, that will form the basis for a study, a PEA on a third phase of expansion. And if Cora is at 5 million ounces at that point, I would anticipate they'll be looking at some sort of study contemplating 300 to 400,000 ounces per year of production. And remember, it, this in Q1 as an example of this year, of 2019, we were the third lowest or, or bottom five cost producers in the world. And, and, and that was a, a testament to John and his team and the grade that we have, that we could do that. So even during a development stage, a growth stage, and sustaining costs that, that were amongst the lowest in the world, uh, we had in that quarter a head grade in the neighborhood of 23.6 grams per ton gold. So uh, it, not only is this big, uh, but these are high margin ounces. So the plan and, and what comes next, I think the 100% focus of the company, build up the resource, show what that resource can mean in terms of a future expansion, concurrently build cash flow. And people always ask me about M&A. And obviously, if this is three, 400,000 ounces per annum, if it's 5 million ounces and growing of high margin ounces, you're going to get approached, you're going to have a lot of those discussions, but I think what John is doing is correct, have blinders on, and just fundamentally advance the company as fast as you can, because if there is an M&A transaction in the future, you want to make sure that you've pushed the envelope as much as possible on site in terms of getting the biggest resource size and getting the biggest production profile that you can have for that point in time. Well, congratulations, Brian. I want to just switch gears here and talk a bit about your up, upbringing. Uh, what were you like as a kid? Were you a rich kid? What inspired you? And how, how did you end up in this field? Yeah, it, not, not a rich kid at all, uh, Tommy, but uh, I think a, a hardworking kid. I was uh, really involved in the community, uh, involved from a young age in politics. Uh, my brother still jokes about it to this day that when I went to Expo 86, I was 12 years old and people came back with all sorts of different fun stuff. And I, I came back with a cardboard cutout of Ronald Reagan that I proceeded <laughs> to have in my room for the next several years. Uh, and it became a bit of a longstanding family joke. So I was always very interested in business. I was curious uh, about politics, curious about uh, the community and making a difference. Uh, very uh, involved in golf, as I think we've talked about before. I worked at the the golf course uh, from, uh, I guess, that 11, 12 years of age, cleaning clubs. I caddied. I was working in the pro shop throughout high school. And, and that was really interesting for me because through that experience, I got to meet all sorts of different people uh, in business. Uh, my, my father was an educator. He was a high school uh, principal and an elementary school principal, it, it, but was always very interested in business, but wasn't in the business realm. And, and through the golf course work that I did as a, as a young kid, I got to meet people that were in all sorts of business uh, uh, and, and entrepreneurial 
uh, endeavors. And, and that really drove my curiosity. And I think is what led to my interest in the capital markets. Other than your parents, who do you think had the single greatest impact on your life? You know, I, I think that other than my parents, I, I had an uncle that was uh, very entrepreneurial and, and had a big impact on my life uh, because of the fact he ran his own business. I got to uh, see him grow that business uh, and, and really flourish with it. Lots of communication back and forth with him. Uh, also, uh, I, I had a grandfather that was just extremely uh, interested in the markets. Uh, and he, in fact, we're, we're celebrating his 95th birthday in a couple of weeks. And, and I know that when I'm there, the first several questions will be uh, about K92, about various <laughs> mining stocks. So it, he really fostered uh, that appetite or interest to, to learn more about the markets. And, and then out of, uh, I guess, out of my, my early childhood, uh, I also ha had a fellow that, that has since passed away uh, who, who was a lumber trader, actually owned a, a large uh, lumber manufacturing facility, very entrepreneurial. We became good friends, not only golf friends, but I, I did work for him. I was a stockbroker. He was my first client uh, that, that I ever had. And uh, it, he was a real hard driving guy. I think, you know, it not taught me, but, but reinforced the need for, for hard work. Uh, so uh, those few guys definitely had big influences. Do you, do you have a formal post-secondary education? You know, I went after post-secondary, I, I went uh, for a couple of years, I got a diploma at college in the Fraser Valley, British Columbia. I then went and did my Canadian securities course, did the professional financial planning course, uh, but also, I think learned a lot as a initially as a young guy in my twenties doing a bit of lumber trading, and I'll tell you it sets you up well for the stock market because it's a it's a cutthroat business and it's a business that you have to really think on your feet a whole lot. Post that is where I left and and became a broker and started out as a broker. Uh, in my 20s, um, was exclusively focused on the natural resource space, mainly mining with a, a little bit of forestry in the mix. And if you're a broker or entrepreneurial broker, I should say, and, and you're from British Columbia, you usually, or at least in those days, you, you gravitated towards the, the mining business. And, and that's certainly what I did. And, and, and then learned, I think, uh, a lot of great lessons uh, of what to do and not to do uh, from some of the early uh, mining uh, promoters slash uh, company operators that, that I helped finance. Uh, what would you say stands out most from your experience as a broker at Canaccord? I think as a broker, uh, what stood out most is that you want to back good groups that, that have track records of success because anybody can sit in a boardroom or, or, or a lot of people can sit in a boardroom, give a good presentation, talk about what, what they're going to do. Uh, as one of my friends in Australia uh, told me, uh, they're called iguanas. I, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And uh, <laughs> you don't necessarily ever see a track record of execution. So I learned early on, I think through some disappointments and in investments that I made, that you want to see that there's some substance uh, to the guys in terms of execution track record. And I, I'm not a believer that you, you have to invest uh, with guys that have only had monster billion dollar successes, but you want to invest with, with people that, that have shown they can execute technically on the ground, that they can advance a project. And you always need a bit of luck in the ground, of course, but if they do get lucky, that they're gonna be competent enough to, to advance it. And I think that's something that happened with K92 is that of course we, we were really fortunate when we had the discovery of the core extension, but we had the right group of people around that was able to take that good fortune or good luck in the ground 
and then run with it and quickly advance it, execute it, and turn it from a concept into a real business. Uh, so it, as a broker, uh, I learned again through, through successes and failures that you need to back people that have shown they can do it before. So I've had some exposure to some of the senior uh, management team at Canaccord at the time you were there. I was just wondering, are there any Peter Brown or Paul Reynolds stories you can share with us? Uh, not a lot of stories. I, I worked with a, a small group of guys outside of the main centers. So not a whole lot of stories that I would share. I, I think it's a great company and I, I just think they did an incredible job growing that from its venture capital roots to be a, a truly global uh, powerhouse uh, and a, a company that has financed uh, as many or more natural resource companies uh, as any group out there. Why did you leave? I left for an opportunity that, that I, I saw geologically that I wanted to chase and uh, it came together uh, with a group of people to do that. Uh, one of those people was Tuki Angus. Um, and, and there's a guy I, I could have and, and, and probably should have mentioned earlier as having a big influence on my life. Uh, it, Tukey has just had an incredible career, incredible track record in the mining space, both as a lawyer, a company founder, you know, a chairman on some boards of renown. And I, I left Canaccord uh, to pursue a venture with Tukey uh, that uh, – for uh, some time, worked out well. It was pure exploration. We were able to fund it, uh, get some very exciting holes, uh, but it never progressed because of conditions on the ground. Uh, but it was a project that I'm still quite proud of working on. And I left Canaccord because I realized after my interaction with all these various groups that if I had the right team around me, I could do the same thing that these guys were doing that I was financing. And I wanted to have a bit more control over my destiny. Uh, as an investor, you write a check and, and then you're looking for updates. I wanted to be on the inside of a company trying to really drive and transact and, and build a business from the inside. So if you were starting your career again today, would the broker route be a good option? I think the broker route's a great option in terms of learning the business, uh, getting acquainted with different players in the business, getting to know some good geologists, some good engineers, uh, some good bankers, etc. cetera. Uh, I, I do think that because of regulatory changes, uh, the environment for brokers is different than it was in the past. There's definitely uh, across Canada, uh, more of a push, I think, for brokers to become asset gatherers and focus on uh, financial management uh, versus the transactional type broker that I was and, and that, that I liked uh, being. So I, I think that it, it is a, it's a tough call now how you enter the business uh, and whether or not the broker route's the right route. Uh, I do think that another route, if you get involved with the right group, is coming on internal uh, in an investor relations capacity, learning corporate development, you know, and moving that route through the business. So I, I would say that um, both are good routes, uh, but depending on everybody's outcome that they desire in terms of what type of business person they want to be down the road, uh, there are likely some differences there that they would need to consider. So just speaking generally, what advice would you give a young person with regards to building wealth in their career? I would say that early on, it's about building and creating wealth. So you're going to have to take some risks, career risks, professional risks early on and expose yourself to some wins. Once you have some wins under your belt, that growth of capital becomes a, a balancing act with preservation of capital and management of that capital. In terms of how a young person comes in and creates wealth, I think not only is it, is it hard work, you know, and striving to be curious and learn as much about the business, but it, it's also important to build up a small network of people you trust, 
from different disciplines and different strengths uh, than you have. So as you're looking to build uh, with a team around you, uh, make sure that it's not five people and you all have the exact same strengths, which I think, you know, is something that we all fall into once in a while. If you're going to be in this business, you need some good people in capital markets around you and banking around you. You need some great brokers around you. Uh, you need some great geologists and engineers around you. You need some good accounting and legal advice around you. So my advice would be to surround yourself and interact with people who have different strengths than you do. So public venture capital, how does it work and what type of projects is it suited towards? I think that the the mining business in, in that realm or within that realm, you know, when do you go public or why do you need the public markets? Why do you need venture capital within the public markets? I think there are a few reasons. One is on a purely exploration program, you want to uh, share the risk. You're going to share reward, uh, but uh, exploration is very high risk. The rewards, the potential rewards are huge, but there aren't that many people uh, that I know that would go take consistently three, four, five million dollar drill hole risks on their own. So it makes sense to pool resources with other people, share that risk, share the potential reward. So for exploration, I think that there's a huge function for public capital markets and venture capital within those markets. There's also the other side of the coin, established company doing well. Do you go public? Do you seek out venture capital to expand or do you continue to organically grow? And I think there are so many different factors for each business organization, each business owner to consider in that situation. Uh, but there's no doubt in my mind that in general, the biggest bang for the buck uh, for owners of entities in the resource space is going public. And it's a way to monetize your business. It's a way to de-risk your uh, business. Uh, it's a way to smooth out uh, the swings in the commodity space to some degree versus being privately funding, self-funding. Uh, and I think that each business has to look at that on a case-by-case -case basis. But there's no doubt in my mind that anything with an exploration component to it, you know, requires uh, venture capital. And it would be very rare uh, that I would recommend people taking big parts of their net worth and betting it on a single drill hole or a series of drill holes. I think public markets, venture capital within this space suits that just perfectly. What have been your biggest blunders in venture capital and what have you learned from them? You know, the biggest blunders in venture capital, I think, is being uh, non-involved uh, in different investments. So, uh, and I see this, it's a common occurrence for people in our industry, is that things are going well. When the markets are good, you, you do generate a lot of cash flow. And I think that when things are going well, and you are generating a lot of cash flow, sometimes it's easy to get lazy with investments and make investments uh, with groups who you have an acquaintance with, you know, and, and you're taking a, a so-called punt on an idea that they have in exploration or in the resource space, and, and you're not doing a, a, enough due diligence. Part of the reason I think is, is, is laziness, but part of the reason is, is in those periods of time, we all get busy with our own stuff. So if, if you have hours and hours of time on your hands during a day, you can conduct quite good due diligence on a project. If you're tight because you're, you're a busy person with your own business interests, with the own companies you're running, and you don't have sufficient time or the team around you to do due diligence, I would say stay focused on your own uh, endeavors. So I think in the past, uh, I, I have invested outside of my own uh, my own businesses uh, or businesses that I'm principal in uh, without doing enough due diligence. Over the years, uh, I've learned to do less and less of that, uh, and now 
I, I, I'm just extremely select in, in the companies that I'll, I'll invest in personally outside of my own group. What would you say is the toughest part of your job? The toughest part of the job I think, is just maintaining uh, the right team of people uh, around. And the reason that I say that is that you put together a great team for a single project and you're working with like-minded people. Uh, as that project becomes successful, it, people do want to go out, do their own things. People do have different ideas about what they want to do next. It, so how do you keep the, the core group of people around that make things happen? Uh, I've been fortunate that I've worked together with uh, four or five people uh, quite consistently you know, over a period of several years. Uh, we're on boards together. We finance things together, uh, look at uh, project generation together. And it's finding that group and then keeping it together. So the biggest challenge is, is how do you keep uh, that group of people that, that have created some sort of uh, magic or, or execution in the past, how do you keep them together for the next deal and to continue to look at stuff? And you're never going to have, you know, a, a complete replicate of project, board, team on the ground, uh, geology from project to project. Uh, but I think it's helpful to keep things as consistent as possible in terms of the team. So obviously the more liquid your stock, the easier it is to acquire other projects and raise money. But if, if you're pre-results or pre-revenue, it's very hard to get uh, attention to your story, especially without a track record. So I'm wondering what do you think are the keys to honest or ethical stock promotion from your perspective? You know, I think it, it's awareness work that does two things. One is you need a good institutional base of shareholders on every situation. And the reason that I believe that is that institutional shareholders, for the most part, uh, the right ones, have a longer time horizon than the average retail investor will withstand some of the cyclical downs or individual downs with your company during tough times versus the re retail investor. You need that base, that core group, that sticky money in the deal that is there for the, the big outsized returns. So if a fund that's a $500 million fund has $2 million invested in your company, they're not there to trade it for 10 to 15%. They're likely there for the chance, the opportunity, the high risk, high reward punt that they get a big outsized 10x, 15x return that can then have, for minor exposure, can have a material effect on the performance of their fund within a specified time. So you need that core. Post that, or with that, I guess, is a better way of saying it, you need to have broad retail awareness. And in the old days, people phoned their broker for advice and their broker would give them two or three ideas. And that was the source of advice they would get in terms of these venture names. Well, well now that's not happening for a number of reasons, uh, in part because so many people trade online, they manage their own portfolios of investments uh, via online trading, et cetera, the discount brokers. So you need to reach them in a broader way. And, and I think, uh, being present on sites like yours, Tommy, the CEO.ca site, uh, being present and getting the story in front of newsletter writers that want to take some interest. You need just to have a broad audience following what you're doing so that if you get results on the ground, it translates into buying. And there's no doubt that retail buying is, is punchy. When results come, good grades, there's punchy buying. So the combination of that type of active investor along with a base of sticky institutional investors there for outsized returns, to me, that makes sense. And at the same time, I think you've got to do the traditional stuff. Uh, you've got to jump on the plane, meet with institutional investors, uh, hit the major markets, try to discover some other markets. You know, I, I always have respect for a CEO when I run into him at the airport or her at the airport and I see that they're going somewhere in the Midwest of the United States or the South 
or, or some town in Europe that I, I haven't heard of because they're out there reaching out to uh, pools of capital that don't get that much exposure to Canadian resource entities. And, and it, it's hard work. It's not always a lot of fun, but you've got to be out there constantly telling your story so that when good things do happen on the ground, there are a lot of people listening from both the institutional world and the retail world. How do you handle stress and criticism? Well, not well. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, you know, I think at the end of the day, there are always going to be people uh, critical of a business plan. And, and that's part of uh, fact of life when you're a public company. So when you're a public company, you have thousands of owners. And, and I think that it, it, it's great that people are critical. It's, it's great that people question what the public company is doing. On K9 too, we, we've had an incredible amount of interaction with shareholders you know, over the past few years, uh, very supportive of what's going on on the ground and the business plan, uh, sometimes critical of it. And, and people have differences of opinion. I, I, I've gone into meetings where we've had investors want us to get out and chase the big porphyry targets. And then you'll walk uh, 10 minutes down the street for your next meeting and the investor will tell you to ignore the porphyry targets, concentrate on Cora resource growth. Then you'll have somebody say, well, resource growth isn't that important. Concentrate on ramping the production. Well, it, what these investors uh, are, are saying by giving that criticism, advice, opinion, is that they care, and they care because they're owners of the company. And I think that anybody that gets involved with a public company has to be the cognizant of the fact that you're going from being an individual owner or a family owner of something to having thousands of co-owners with you. So I think criticism in that regard is great. I don't get too flustered by criticism of, of a company and how it's executing their business plan. As long as it's well-founded, there's good discussion about it. And let's recognize everybody has differences of opinion. We're hiring the management uh, as co-owners to execute a business plan. And the fact is, if, if you don't like the business plan, you can convey it to them, work with them uh, on it, get your opinion across. And at the end of the day, another beauty about the public markets is if you really feel that you're at odds with how a particular group is executing on the ground, you can vote with your shares and exit the name and, and move to, to a group that's more aligned with how you think strategically should execute. So as far as criticism on different public companies, I, I, I don't take it uh, with, with any degree as a negative. I, I think we're all co-owners. And when I'm a shareholder in something that I'm not involved in, I offer my opinions all the time also. And, uh, you know, I think sometimes they're, they're appreciated. Sometimes they're ignored, but, but I accept that, that I'm investing somewhere and I'm, I'm not, uh, uh, it's not a private business. I think naysayers take a, make a message travel farther. And also the more critical they are of a message, the more important the readers think it is. So I've found some positive in criticism myself. I'm wondering, uh, have you found comfort in tough times from a daily habit, a sport, uh, an activity, or a spiritual pursuit? What do you do in your darkest hours? Well, where I live, I'm, I'm 30 minutes or so from a ski mountain that I, I really like. And uh, I, last year, I, I had a record for the number of days personally that I've, I've skied in a year. And to me, it, when things are a real grind in the market, uh, or there, there's some sort of, of issue that's going on, there's nothing more that I like than to get up and, and, and ski, even if it's only for a few hours uh, in the afternoon on a weekday, or, or if it's a full day on a weekend. I, I think there's nothing better than getting out there, and, and you're out in the midst of not only beautiful scenery, but, but it's a complete change uh, from, from our day-to-day -day, uh, environment. So I, I would like that uh, along with just being outdoors in general is the biggest spiritual refresh that, that I can have. And, and quite often, uh, you know, over the past couple of years, it, when things have been, you know, intensely busy, 
I, I will get up to the hill and, and uh, get there for three or four hours and come back just completely recharged with also a different perspective on things. After the success of K92, what was one extravagance you rewarded yourself with? What is one extravagance I rewarded myself with? Not, not much in terms of real extravagance. Uh, I bought some new golf clubs. I was quite happy with that. Uh, <laughs> I've, uh, you know, look, in, in, in this business, these things, you know, come and go in terms of, of good ideas. Uh, there's a lot of idea flow. There's a lot of deal flow out there. So, uh, you know, I, I've, um, I'm a large shareholder of K92. I believe that the best days are ahead of it. Uh, of course, the success was uh, uh, nice because we, we created a lot of wealth for shareholders. Uh, I think that post a couple of years of, of not being away from the, the phone or the desk or the computer for a minute, uh, my wife and I and the kids went to Hawaii and enjoyed that. And I, and I vividly remember that, that trip because I actually had the phone off a, a few, few times. So you know, th that was once things were, were well on its way and, and things were going exceptionally well at Cora. But there have been no real extravagances. And, and sometimes, Tommy, the way I'm hitting these golf clubs, I, I think uh, I shouldn't have bought them. I should have <laughs> what I had. <laughs> Do you think you will ever get an opportunity like K92 again in your career? Absolutely. I think that the... Uh, you know, there's a great saying that somebody told me once. They said, everybody gets five to ten once-in-a-lifetime opportunities. <laughs> you know, there's no doubt that Canantu, uh, the project, it, it's exceptional. And, and to find that type of grade, that type of size potential, the ability to cash flow early, it's exceptional. It's unique. And I, I don't want to take anything away from just how unique it is. It, but there are a lot of unique projects out there that are exceptional you've got to have the right team to execute and, and unlock the value. Uh, and we have enough guys around that, that as these projects come up, we can unlock the value. Uh, there are a couple of new things that I'm working on right now that I'm just exceptionally excited about. Everything's different. It's not the same uh, package as K92, uh, but there are beautiful things within any of these projects and the fact is K92 has given us an incredible amount of deal flow. So because of the success with K92, we've been able to pick and choose from hundreds of deals we've been shown. And that's why I'm really excited about these things that I'm working on now. So why don't you tell us a bit about the new ventures, starting with uh, new Fosterville. Why is it a good bet? Sure, I mean, th this project, uh, Fosterville South, it's a really unique situation. I think that as everybody out there knows that follows the gold space, Fosterville is the lowest cost and highest grade mine on the planet. And Fosterville has driven just exceptional wealth creation for shareholders of Kirkland Lake Gold uh, who own Fosterville. Uh, it, it's a real special environment geologically. Now, if you walk through Toronto, London, New York, a number of years ago and talked about Fosterville, not a whole lot was known about it. Uh, you know, it, it's really been in recent years that Fosterville has become such a topical situation. We were fortunate through uh, our network uh, to have a geologist who, who lives in the Fosterville area, has worked in the area, uh, knows the area inside out. It, it's literally his backyard. He was able to, a, a couple of years ago, uh, before there was as much hype about Fosterville as there is today, a, a couple of years ago, start to put together a land package. We've now acquired three separate projects in this region, including a large historically producing asset that's directly south and adjoins Kirkland Lakes Fosterville tenements. The three projects that we have in the region have all had historic production, including some small-scale production north of 50 grams per ton. One of the other projects has production north of 20 grams per ton, so exceptional grades. 
One of the other fellows that we work closely with, Doug Kerwin, Australian geologist of real renown. Uh, Doug's a Taylor Lindsay Award winner, credited with leading the discovery team at Oetoga. Doug looked at this series of projects for us from a technical perspective and came back and said, this is a lot more than closeology. This is exciting, not only because these projects are adjacent to Fosterville, around the Fosterville, but geologically, they have huge merit. So I couldn't be more excited about that. Uh, a fellow what, named uh, Sorry, what is the valuation approximately, and when do you expect this to be a public entity? I know you can't pro make promises about that, but just, just curious for context. Yeah, it, it's private right now. Uh, we've just done a round that was you know, significantly oversubscribed for $6 million um, at 40 cents. Uh, we'll come out of the gate, so fully diluted, with 45 million shares. Uh, so that's a sub uh, or in, in an about $20 million uh, cap. Uh, we're working towards advancing it to a public status now. Uh, for that $6 million uh, of availability, Tommy, I think we had north of 25 million in orders. Uh, and you know we're really pleased with the institutional adoption on this. Uh, the, the demand institutionally was just incredible uh, after guys did a deep dive on, on the assets. Uh, tough to say exactly when it goes public. I would hope uh, in the next uh, four to five months. So just uh, moving to South America, you created a Peruvian copper and gold exploration company called Termalina last year. Uh, could you tell us about it and how you're going to make that a success? Yeah, Termalina Metals, again, a private company. Uh, we did the last raise for $7 million at 50 cents. Uh, again, dramatically oversubscribed, north of $25, 30000000 million in orders for that. Great institutional adoption on that. That company is looking in, at advancing projects in Peru, Argentina, and potentially Chile. The first project in Argentina, drilling has been active on. We anticipate assays post coming to trade publicly. We're waiting for uh, that public trade date. Incredible team behind that. And we're looking at tourmaline breaches that have often been overlooked. Our project in Argentina is one of the highest grade tourmaline breaches ever discovered. So again, fitting in with the high grade theme. The CEO of Termalina is Dr. Rohan Wolf. I was mentioning earlier, by the way, just before we digressed, uh, a fellow named James Hutton is the CEO of Fosterville South, incredible guy. But Rohan Wolf and the team that he's put together in South America, for the last two years, they've been scouring South America as we've been a private company looking for projects. They've looked through hundreds of potential projects and they've narrowed it down to three that they like. We're going public off the back of two of these projects uh, and really exceptional grade. The what's, team the, what's the valuation, sorry, on Termalina? Uh, fairly similar. Well, 50 million shares out uh, as we go public. And the last raise was done at 50 cents. So approximately $25 million. Well, we'll look forward to the both of those. Um, what personnel? Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, Tommy. There's a big K92 uh, crossover there with Termalina. Uh, I've come on as president of Termalina. Uh, John Lewins, who's the CEO of K92, has come on as an advisor to Termalina. Mark Eaton, who's one of the founding directors of K92, is on Termalina. So as we advance that, we'll have some great advice around the, the entity. Uh, again, the grades are exceptional, but as I mentioned earlier, I think it's all about team and, and we've got just a, a, an incredible team there. We're really blessed in terms of the team we have at Termalina. Just a few more questions while I've got you. What personality traits have served you well in the venture capital industry? Being curious, uh, curious guy. And uh, when I sit down to learn about a project, I'll, I'll ask you know, dozens of questions. I'll, I'll, I'll want to know 
what the geologists on site think. I want to know what the engineers think. I want to know what the bankers like and don't like about it. I think being curious is important. Uh, at the same time, tenacity. I mean, anybody that's done well in this business knows things never go straight up. K92 was a good example. We had twists and turns as, as any mining restart does. And, and it's easy in this business, I think, you know, to, to just throw in the towel at some points. So I think that anybody that wants to be successful in this business has to be tenacious, has to be able to move through adversity. We were talking earlier, Tommy, about uh, criticism. You, you have to be able to, to learn not to take it too personally, know that people have different opinions, and just keep persevering, pushing forward, and doing what you think is best for the project. Can you describe a time when you were the recipient of an unusual kindness? Recipient of an unusual kindness. I was at, uh, my, on my first trip uh, to Papua New Guinea, uh, which is not a, a wealthy place uh, per capita. Uh, they're emerging, but there is still poverty there, etc. And I, I was at a, a small airport and as with any first trip to a place, you're looking around trying to get a feel for things. And I had walked out of the airport terminal, was waiting for a drive or a driver that wasn't there yet. You know, and there's thousands of people around and it was quite chaotic. And anyways, I see a guy running at me and I think, oh no, what did I do wrong? What was it? And what he had was he had my ATM card that uh, I had left in the machine a couple of minutes before, you know, and had must have given where the ATM was. He must have spent 10 minutes finding me. So huh. just uh, unbelievable in terms of the perception that we sometimes have of these emerging places. And, and, and you think that there, there's something there that likely wouldn't have been returned in any North American city. The guy went out of his way uh, to get it to me. I thought it was great. It's quite a metaphor because Papua New Guinea's turned into a bit of an ATM machine for you. Um, tell me, <laughs> what is the Jim Susarchuk Memorial Golf Tournament? That's a tournament that we organized now for more than 20 years. Uh, my dad, as I mentioned earlier, was an educator in the community, very involved as a volunteer in youth sports. Uh, died of a heart attack at a young age, uh, you know, quite, quite tragically given the age. Uh, and the tournament's something we put on every year to raise funds for, for a scholarship. And the scholarship is administered by what's called the Mission Foundation. Uh, there's enough capital in it that the interest alone uh, from the, the foundation will spit out multiple scholarships every year in, in perpetuity. And the tournament's not only a way to raise funds for that scholarship, but also a way to get people together, talk about volunteering, talk about a community. And it's also a great time. We have a few laughs about old times, and it's a real mix of people, people from my life currently that I do business with, people that I went to school as a young kid with, and also friends of my dad's and former, or, you know, former co-workers. So, yeah, it's, it's a special day every year, and we're able to raise a, a lot of money for a good cause in the process. How old were you when your dad passed away? It was uh, 17. Wow. 17. So, yeah, it was, it was a young age, and all of a sudden, I, I think it, it accelerates a couple of things in terms of uh, what you think or perceive uh, – you have to do or, or that you have to quickly uh, move into adulthood. Uh, it, it definitely did that. And, and I think I did that. And, uh, and also now, you know, we look back with, with, you know, a lot of, uh, uh, we feel that we're very blessed to have had him as a father. Uh, and that tournament is one example of something we do every year to try to, uh, keep the memories alive of what was a really great guy. I'm sure he'd be proud of you, Brian. Well, but if he you. was looking down, what do you think uh, between you and Jim, would you collectively consider one thing you should change about yourself? 
I, you know, I, I should probably start to, to be a bit more healthy here, Tommy. You know, I've, I've, uh, I've gained a bit of weight in uh, recent years, uh, you know, and I, I blame it on travel and blame it on everything else, but I know that that's an excuse. So uh, with that, I think that just starting to take care of myself a little bit better in terms of health. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I've done that, but at the same time, uh, I mentioned skiing earlier. I've got to admit the ski jacket was a little tight uh, <laughs> end of the season. So I'm going in the right direction now, but you can check back with me in a few months on how that's going. boy. Well, we can connect on that <laughs> offline. We, we shared that uh, journey. So finally, Brian, for a, a last question, what is your definition of a good man? A good man. I think a man that's honest, uh, that, it tells it like it is, even when it's not a, a something that's popular. Um, that that stays true to himself, even when it's not uh, always the, the easiest thing to do. So I guess in in a snippet, somebody uh, that that moves forward doing what they believe is right, uh, even when it's not the easiest path. Well, wonderful conversation. Great catching up with you, Brian. Great. Thanks a lot, Tommy. Hope to see you soon. Likewise.